Welcome to this last episode of Season 3 of the Australian Naval History Podcast Series. It is a production of the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales, Canberra, in partnership with the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society, the Submarine Institute of Australia and the Sea Power Centre Australia. I'm Professor Robert Glocklin, Director of the Australian Centre for the Study of Armed Conflict and Society at the University of New South Wales, Canberra. On 21 December 2017, the Australian Government announced that the exact location of the wreck of the Royal Australian Navy's first wartime loss, the submarine HMAS A1, had been found. The survey ship Fugro Equator, using a remotely operated vehicle, had located the wreck. This expedition was funded by the Commonwealth Government and the Silent World Foundation, with additional assistance from the Navy. The Submarine Institute of Australia and the Australian National Maritime Museum also assisted. The submarine had been lost during the 1914 Rabaul campaign, somewhere in the waters between New Britain and New Ireland, in present-day Papua New Guinea. The Rabaul campaign and AE1's part in it was the subject of an earlier episode of the Australian Naval History video and podcast series, and I commend that to anyone who has not listened or viewed that episode. The fate of AE1 remained a mystery for over a century and involved 13 search operations to find the resting place of the boat and the 35 men who went down in her. In this episode, we will discuss the remarkable discovery of the AE1, and I am indeed fortunate to be joined in the studio by Rear Admiral Peter Briggs, who led the successful search for HMAS AE1, Mr James McPherson, who was part of the Navy's media team and also participated in the search for AE1, and Mr Jim Smale, a retired Naval officer who served 30 years in the RAN, and he is the nephew of Petty Officer Robert Smale, a crew member of HMS AE1. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us today. First off, Peter Briggs. As mentioned, the AE1 was involved in the Rabaul campaign when she was lost. Briefly, what was she doing when she disappeared? Uh, they were ordered with Parramatta <coughs> to uh, undertake a patrol off Cape Gazelle against to uh, protect the anchorage against the approach of the German uh, Pacific cruisers, mm -hmm. Scharnhorst and Neishau. Uh, on the day, uh, they met Parramatta and AE1 met up uh, off uh, Herbert Show, where Parramatta had been anchored, and proceeded down towards Cape uh, Gazelle. And we have quite a good account from Parramatta, who wrote a report of proceedings describing the day's activities, and we rely on that. Uh, the original is still in the archives and really quite nice to be able to see this beautiful copper plate writing. Um, AE1 differed from his orders and let Parramatta go and do the patrol and AE1 went up off the Duke of York Islands. And we believe <coughs> he was looking for a German steamer that had been sighted the night before by Yarra. Uh, the steamer was there. He didn't find it, but the steamer was actually there. It was the Mechlong and it was found nine days later, captured by Parramatta. Mm. Um, but he patrolled up there uh, uh, for the, the morning and the two met up off Duke of York Island at 2.30 in the afternoon. And that was the last known, uh, gave us the last known position uh, of AE1. Uh, Parramatta uh, opened out and by 3.20 had lost sight of AE1. Uh, so somewhere between 2.30 and 3.20, uh, the two-parted company. He assumed AE1 was going back to Rabaul, as had been ordered, and thought no more of it. Went round 
Duke of York Islands, uh, anti-clockwise, and back to his anchorage at Herbert Show. Uh, <coughs> the alarm was raised at about 8.30 in the evening by uh, Dacre Stoker in AE2. He had a team of uh, technicians waiting to fix a defect in AE1, and he became concerned that AE1 hadn't returned. Uh, so that yeah. AE1 was lost, seeking out the foe. Well, Jim Smale, your uncle was Petty Officer Bert Smale. Can you tell us uh, some things about him and his naval service? Yes, certainly. Um, <clears throat> Robert was born on the 26th of August, oh, sorry, January uh, 1888 in Galashields in Scotland. Yeah. At the age of 16, he was sent to sea uh, on sailing ships and after two years in the Baltic trade, he uh, was shipped onto the Loch Tay. It was and she was bound for Australia, taking a cargo to uh, to Australia, to Port Melbourne, in fact. It took 107 days for the ship to get from uh, England to Port Melbourne, during which time the uh, uh, the uh, uh, ship had was becalmed for about four weeks, oh, resulting in the fact that when she arrived at Melbourne, in Melbourne, the uh, backload which she was t supposed to take back to uh, England had gone on another ship, and the whole crew was discharged in Port Melbourne, <laughs> probably to find their own way back somehow. However, um, my uncle Robert. Uh, uh, liking what he'd seen of Australia, he uh, was able to get a job on the uh, uh, coastal steamer uh, Kumar. And uh, after six months on board Kumar, he uh, then uh, enlisted into the then Australian Navy on the 3rd of August in uh, uh, 1908. He signed on for five years and did his training down in HMAS Cerberus. Promotion came along pretty quickly for him and this was probably due to the fact of his experience at, at sea uh, in sailing ships and uh, he was promoted to first class petty officer um, <clears throat> on the, uh, uh, the 17th of July uh, 1911. On the 1st of July, he uh, was uh, selected to uh, uh, join the commissioning crew uh, of uh, the uh, Australia, new Australian uh, torpedo destroyer HMAS Yarra, mm. which was being built in England. And uh, the crew were sent over to England uh, to join the ship. Whilst over there, he visited his parents, his aged parents, who were still in um, uh, living in Gala Shields and uh, he persuaded them that uh, Australia was the place for them and uh, on his return to Australia he uh, had put a uh, substantial uh, deposit on a cottage in 14 Dank Street in Albert Park and that cottage is still there today mm -hmm. and uh, he sent the um, uh, passage money for uh, his parents, uh, my grandparents, and also uh, uh, 
uh, my father and his twin sister and an elder brother and uh, another sister. And they all uh, came and uh, settled in 14 Dank Street. Um, again, in 1912, he, uh, sorry, 19, yes, 1912, he was selected to uh, uh, go to, um, to England for two years to um, train to become a submariner. And uh, uh, during the two years he was over there before the AE1 was commissioned, he um, uh, did his training at HMS Dolphin in Gosport, uh, um, England, also known as Fort Brockhouse. And of course, uh, the um, resultant fact that he uh, commissioned the uh, AE1 and brought it back to Australia. And unfortunately, we know what happened to the AE1. Indeed. Well, <coughs> James McPherson, can you tell us about uh, some of the other men who served in A1? Well, going through all of the accounts at the, at the time and learning more about the, sub, the fledgling submarine force at the time, I'm struck by simply how brave they all would have been. Uh, members of the uh, Navy at the time had to volunteer for the submarine service and be selected. So they were the, the, amongst the most trained, uh, the, some of the best that Navy had to offer at the time. They all knew how dangerous the work was. Submarines were experimental machines at the time. And I think it takes great bravery in, in mm. to put yourself in one of those submarines and then subsequently put it to sea. They were difficult to keep at sea. And so you needed people. We imported some expertise from, from the Royal Navy, obviously, to, to build the submarine force. We had a collection of British, Australian and a New Zealander in there to, to crew the submarine. And the, the attitude is what strikes me when I read the historical accounts, the can-do attitude. If you judged it by today's standards, some would say cavalier attitude, but they were desperate to play their part in the war, desperate to repel the, the German press into the Pacific. And I think that that speaks volumes about the men mm. of AE1. The, courage with which they committed themselves to the, to the war effort. So, Peter, you, you mentioned that this was the last and successful search uh, for AE1, and it was the 13th. What can you tell us about the first 12 searches? <coughs> well, the first search, of course, was taken by the ships immediately uh, after the, the accident. Uh, Yarra and Parramatta were sailed, left the anchorage about 11 p.m. and searched back through the last known position and around the top of Duke of York Islands. And there was a very, very strong current running to the northwest from the monsoon. And they, uh, against the chance that the submarine was disabled and drifting on the surface, then proceeded well out to the northwest mm -hmm. to uh, cover the eventuality that she was adrift and, and uh, disabled, as it were. Uh, Warrigo, another destroyer, uh, joined the search en route back from uh, Kaviang in the morning, the next morning, the, the 16th, <coughs> and Encounter was sailed from her position as the guard ship in, off Rabaul Harbour and also went round out through the last known position and then back to her guard ship position early in the morning of the 16th. None of them found anything significant. Uh, and plotting, knowing where the wreck is now, 
Uh, we could look at what the currents were doing because we would expect to see a debris field mm -hmm. uh, from the damage that's been done to the wreck. Uh, we were able to plot the debris field. We know their uh, tracks from their logs, deck logs and so on. And it's quite interesting that they, the, the debris field at, at uh, sunset, there were no ships there to see it. Uh, and then by sunrise, it had drifted past where the ships were searching. Mm. So they, they were not lucky on the day. Um, Encounter did find an oil slick, and it probably was a one, but they put it down to a <coughs> uh, passing ship. Mm -hmm. And so they, they then searched with small craft on the fringing reefs and, and found nothing. Um, there were a number of searches. The navies looked on when they had the opportunity. Uh, Jacques Cousteau uh, did some brief searching as well. Uh, I guess the most significant effort was put in by uh, Commander John Foster, who uh, was an anti-submarine specialist, uh, but as the naval attaché in PNG in Port Moresby <coughs> became interested in the story mm -hmm. and then became absolutely focused on finding AE-1 and put many years of his life in retirement into trying to find it, to raise funds, uh, to encourage the Navy to, to look. And he and Dr. Jeremy Green did a number of searches with towed magnetometers. All those searches uh, really suffered from the technology. And none of them, until we had the Fugro equator with its autonomous underwater vehicle uh, and marvelous uh, capacity to search, uh, we really didn't have the right technology. The depth of water and the bottom topography is, is very challenging. Uh, so there were, there were 12 previous attempts, we were lucky the 13th time, but the, with the right technology. Yeah. So a lot of those 12 previous attempts had been in the right area, but just not enough um, of the technology to... to, to none do. of them covered the, the, the site. Yep. Um, it, it, our early analysis uh, led us to believe that there'd been a grounding, and we then, perhaps the 12th search, was a multi-beam echo sounder. The 11th search was a multi-beam echo sounder, which we undertook. Mm -hmm. And we cleared the area inside down to 200 metres water depth. There was no wreck. Yeah. And so we had to go back to the analysis and, and, and reconsider. If there'd been a grounding, we would expect to find it close to the, the edge. Yeah. It wasn't there. Uh, in the, the, the fresh analysis, we found an extra hour in the life of AE1. <coughs> and that, uh, opened up the possibility that they'd undertaken a practice dive. They had time enough from their last known position, they had to be back in Rabaul by dark at 1750, and starting at 1430, not 1530, they had time enough to do a practice dive. And okay. that became our principal uh, scenario and was the basis then for the search area that we set up that successfully located the, the wreck. Okay. Well, James, what's been the Navy's role in these searches? Well, it, it, obviously the immediate search in the aftermath um, mm -hmm. had to be called off relatively quickly. Obviously, we're at, at wartime oh. being what it was. Uh, and the simple fact that nothing was found. Uh, but interest waned, to be perfectly honest. Mm -hmm. and, um, and we heard about John, John Foster re rekindling that, that interest in, in AE1. And he was actually met with... Uh, lacklustre interest from the Navy hierarchy at the time. He, he was really energised about it and was sort of 
not brushed aside, but sort of told, forget about it, it's, it's not going to be found. And, and he, uh, being as tenacious as he was, took that as a challenge, I think, and uh, took it upon himself to, to, um, to, to raise funds, raise interest, at great personal expense as well. Um, he generated enough interest with Navy to ha have a search done in 76, but it was one single run along the expected path of return to mm. Rabaul. You, you could hardly classify it as a search. Over the years, he obviously took it upon himself to, to do that, and Navy's interest um, w was there, but not resourced. And so on an opportunity basis, Navy would commit platforms to mm -hmm. undertake more searches, and we, we did one in 2007, and again in 2014, and as Peter has alluded to, we were limited by the technology that those ships were, were carrying. They weren't designed for finding shipwrecks and finding objects of interest, as, as we've discovered. There were a number of contacts of interest found over the years, but uh, unfortunately the resources simply weren't there to commit a full-scale search effort without uh, other activities taking ships mm -hmm. to the region. And, uh, and so with this latest search in, in 2017, we, we had reached the end of the line as far as funding was concerned. It was an all or nothing proposition. And I haven't told Peter this yet, but in the meetings when he was telling us that he thought he had a 95% chance of finding it, I was sitting there thinking that was perhaps a bit optimistic. But <laughs> I've, I've learned from speaking with a lot of submariners, they are nothing if not optimistic. And... Uh, and so Navy is, of course, thrilled that, uh, that the search was successful. But, but Navy's c commitment has been measured mm -hmm. and, and limited with, with the resources that uh, we had <coughs> able to commit to searching for it. Well, Peter, talking about that, why was the 13th search launched? And why was it that you had such confidence? Uh, you've talked a little bit about the technology and finding the extra hour. Why was it you had such confidence this time that you would find A1? Uh, well, it was, there was a sense of... Optimism is, is a submarine's not a good place for a pessimist. Uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I would happily admit to being an optimist. But uh, in in the research, we got the sense that we we we'd come to grips with why Bassant was up there, mm -hmm. why he deviated. Uh, we we uncovered uh, when he sailed in the morning. He's given a very direct instruction from the Admiral be back by dark. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's there in HMAS Australia's logbook. Uh, and so uh, having the last known position, which we, we uh, adjusted, we, we looked at the, the, the plot from Parramatta and then transcaled that onto the current chart. And uh, we assumed, again, submarine intuition, that that last known position was actually a rendezvous. Uh, so in the morning between Paramount, there's been a conversation between Parramatta and AE1. You go and do the search. I'm going up to find the steamer. We'll meet at 2.30 at that position. Uh, and, and so we, we scaled it onto the new chart, adjusted it to a whole <coughs> number of minutes, latitude and longitude, as you would for a rendezvous. Mm -hmm. uh, and from there, we had a track back to uh, uh, Rabaul. The... Uh, Looking at the speed time distance, as I said, he had an hour in hand. He had time enough to do a practice dive, and they had been hard pressed. 
they hadn't had a lot of time for training. Mm -hmm. So we, we, again, with submarine intuition, felt that that would have been a priority for him. Um, the technology that uh, Fugro Equator offered, they were, the ship was in the area, so we didn't have to pay to mobilise it to get it there. Mm -hmm. um, Fugro made a very generous offer. It was a cost cap project, and, and so they invested. The search was, or the area we'd set out would have taken 12 days. If it had gone for the full duration, they would have been out of pocket, and they knew it. So they, they committed uh, to it. Uh, the autonomous underwater vehicle, marvellous technology. It, it flies 35 metres off the bottom with a side scan sonar looking out to the side, say 200 metres in every, that direction, and a multi-beam echo sounder looking down below, and it will spot something, a beer bottle. Wow. Um, and <coughs> it, it contour follows, so it, it goes up and over the, top, the topography, which is significant. As the, the survey crew on Fugro Equator said, we're actually looking for a 54 metre long submarine in 35 metres of water. Because that's where the, it, the, the AUV yeah. removes the, the thousand metres or whatever is above it. It doesn't <coughs> matter. It's, it's totally. Uh, so we sent the AUV and it, it, run, it goes backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, mowing the lawn, filling in the search area. The first line was straight down from the last known position on the track back to Rabaul. And within two hours, the AUV went straight over the top <coughs> of AU1. Um, good luck, good analysis. Where the balance is, I'll leave you to draw the conclusion. <laughs> no, it's a great outcome in any case. Um, Jim, did the descendants share this uh, sense of optimism this time round for the search? How did they feel about this new search? Well, I believe that uh, the descendants understanding the advancements in technology, etc., um, <coughs> uh, were quite confident that a positive result would have um, been achieved. And uh, yes, there were many disappointments in uh, uh, over the past years and the previous uh, um, searches. And of course, uh, I would like to point out for those who were superstitious. On this occasion, 13 was a pretty lucky number. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed so. And what do you think was the driving factor this time behind the descendants having this optimism? Was it as Peter talked about, the technology? Well, I think that um, was a, a major part of it. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, me, we, we descendants are... Um, uh, a couple of decades or two uh, from uh, uh, the uh, the crew members and uh, I know in my case it was all handed down to me through my father mm -hmm. um, <coughs> and uh, dad was I think about uh, 18 when um, uh, Uncle Robert uh, was lost and uh, they would have gone through um, some rather very traumatic moments and, uh, in those days. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I, I think it was something that's come down through the, uh, through the uh, years and uh, it was just so wonderful to find that Indeed. we've got a resting place for, for our next of kin and our uh, members of the crew. Indeed. Well, James, can you tell us a little about the partners to the search? Yes, obviously a search of this magnitude uh, can't be done 
on a small scale. Mm. And we learned that through John Foster's work. We, we needed more resources to, to, to do it and, and, and simply money to commit to getting the technology that we required. So uh, the Submarine Institute of Australia obviously kept the Find A1 organisation ticking along for, for, for many years as, as the analysis was undertaken, the research was done and, and ultimately the case was presented uh, to, to Navy and, and, and other potential partners. And, uh, and so Navy committed some resources along with the Silent World Foundation and the Australian National Maritime Museum as well, uh, through their fundraising arm, uh, were heavily involved with, with, with generating the resources required. And we obviously had uh, Frigo as well take, take on some of the risk uh, attached with the expedition. Uh, and, and, and it really couldn't have been done uh, without, without all of those partners coming, to, to coming together. Um, with, the, with the shared optimism that we've spoken about, that, that this was going to be the one. I could add, add to that. The, 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 <coughs> the critical moment for me was uh, uh, when I had the opportunity to brief uh, Mr John Mullen, who was the chairman of the Silent World Foundation and also a, a, has a, a role in the National Maritime Museum, uh, and convince him that we, we had a a good analysis, we had a good chance of finding the submarine and his personal commitment because this all came up quite at short notice. We were planning a, 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 a towed sonar search, uh, 2.4 million uh, and then at sort of six weeks notice Fugro came up and said we've got a ship up there and, and th there's a window but you have to, you have to make your mind up and, and the ship will be finished, it's current work in six weeks. If you're ready to go, we'll put it on this job, otherwise it'll leave. So it was, a, it was a, an all or nothing now moment. And at that point, uh, we needed a million dollars. Navy uh, and the Commonwealth Government provided 50%. And the Silent World Foundation committed to find the other 50%. Wow. They then had to go and raise it from sponsors. John Mullen gave a personal guarantee of the half million. So whatever happened on sponsorship side, if there was any uh, <coughs> shortcoming, he would personally wow. pay for it. That unlocked the opportunity to uh, take up Fugro's generous offer. Well, Peter, you've talked a little bit about the actual process of the search. Can you tell us a bit more about that, in particular, any challenges in, in conducting the search? Uh, we went up there prepared for two weeks mm -hmm. uh, with all the, <coughs> uh, the permits, uh, and, and of course, it's in PNG internal waters, so we had to provide a proposal, a search proposal, uh, to the PNG National uh, Museum and Art Gallery is their body with authority and mm -hmm. responsibility. Uh, and so we were, we were indebted for them coming back quite promptly and giving us a permit to undertake the search. Uh, we had uh, an observer from the National Maritime Museum uh, and, and of course Navy, James was, was with us, and two members from the Silent World Foundation. Uh, so we were prepared for quite an extensive search and analysis process. Uh, it was delightful, we put the AUV down on its first mission, it run, ran for 18 hours and surfaced and then you get the data out. Two hours later, uh, there's a knock on my cabin door, come and have a look at this, and, and there it was, there was a a very uh, good contact, high probability. Um, we sent, we reprogrammed the AUV, broke off its search, and sent it back down again to go round and round this particular contact 
-hmm. and give us better coverage. Uh, the result from that uh, short serial um, picked up at, uh, at first light uh, on the 20th um, gave us more detail, but actually, I, th I think James, you'd agree, it it it, it confused the picture, oh. and and uh, I, there was quite a. It could, this could be a, a line of rocks, mm -hmm. uh, uh, but we we made the decision that the dimensions were were precise, exactly what we were expecting, and so we broke off the search, and then lowered a, a drop camera, which is a video camera rolling uh, colour video with lighting rolling continuously and a, a stills camera that we can trigger from the surface and we get that we had that data coming up in real time uh, so we lowered the ship hovered over the contact dynamic positioning holding it against the current and the wind and we lowered uh, the drop camera down over 300 meters below and out of the gloom uh, came the bow of AE-1 with unmistakable uh, shape of the forward hydroplanes, and that's the moment we knew we'd, we'd found AE-1. Wow. So, Jim, what does finding AE-1 mean to the descendants? Well, after 103 years, we now know the final resting place of the AE-1 and her crew, and uh, I believe closure can now be brought upon this tragedy. Um, I don't believe that anyone can really believe or understand the grief and uh, suffering that uh, the next of kin and uh, close members of the family would have undergone. I have with me here um, a number of letters from my grandmother to authorities um, and in those you can... Uh, you can feel that tone of frustration, of hopelessness, and uh, etc. And if I may, I'd like to quote from one of these, uh, these letters. And uh, <clears throat> uh, it was uh, written by uh, uh, Robert's mother to the authorities concerning the disposal of Robert's effects. One can feel the emotion of the grief that my grandmother must have been suffering by the tone of the letters. Example, an extract from a letter dated the 27th of November 1914, which she wrote to the staff paymaster in Garden Island in Sydney to inform him of her receipt of some of his personal uh, belongings. And this is just a quoting from a section of that letter. You also mention his navy clothes. They are not much use to me, but as they are my dear boys, I would like to have them. I could not have it in my, on my mind that anything belonging to my boy should be sold. And concludes, if there is anything to pay, I will pay at this end. <clears throat> I am his mother and next of kin. Little did we think when we parted with him on the 28th of June, we would never see him home again. Mm. The thought is terrible. Mm. And I think that speaks a lot mm. of the feelings. Uh, so in summing up, I would believe that the finding of the AE1 will certainly bring closure to the uh, descendants. And I'm certain that on their behalf, 
they would be very happy for me to extend our gratitude and sincere thanks to the wonderful dedication display, displayed by all those involved in the 13 searches. Indeed. <coughs> well, James McPherson, on that point, I mean, in recent years, the wrecks of HMAS Sydney 2 uh, and Hospital Ship Centaur and now HMAS A1 have been found. What does this mean to Navy? For Navy, it's, imp it's important because we can learn a lot from, from these wrecks. We can, um, the, the exploits of these ships are now taught in our colleges as we recount the histories and, and the brave acts that are, that are undertaken that often lead to these tragedies. So it's important from that historical context and from the understanding of it all, but, but more importantly, it, it, it is the closure to the families that uh, is, is more important. Uh, I speak to a lot of submariners and they say that if the worst were to happen to them as well, they would take comfort in the fact knowing that someone was going to come and find them and look for them and I don't know where they were. Mm. So it's fulfilling I suppose that commitment that the Navy community has to itself. The Navy community is incredibly strong. It, it, it wasn't <coughs> Navy as an organisation that has uh, persisted. It, it's, it's the naval community, the men and women of the Royal Australian Navy having that loyalty to each other, that commitment to each other, to stand by each other. It's in a way, the, it's the manifestation of the words that we often recite, lest we forget and mm. we will remember them. This is a demonstration of that, so that they're not hollow words. We prove to each other and prove within Navy that we have that commitment for life, because often it's the retired members uh, that spend time and the effort required to, to, to find these, these wrecks. So it's, it's a legacy that lives on. And, uh, but as I say, it's, it's, it's the closure to the families that's the most important thing for, for us to be able to deliver. Peter Briggs, in examining the wreck, are there any clues as to how or why A1 sank? Uh, yes, we were very, very fortunate to uh, get an offer from Mr Paul Allen uh, to divert his superb ship, the research vessel Petrel, uh, complete with a, a large, very, very capable remotely operated vehicle with good cameras uh, to examine the wreck. Mm. Uh, and that opportunity came up in April. Uh, from the, the Fugro, the, the December search, we had a uh, black, black precision camera from the AUV <coughs> which had taken over 6,000 shots from overhead and that had been put together into a mosaic. So mm -hmm. we, we had a good overview of the wreck, but looking vertically down on it doesn't give you anything like an understanding of, of, of the detail. And so the offer from Paul Allen and diversion of his the petrol was a huge opportunity, marvellous opportunity. Uh, <clears throat> we spent two days on the wreck. We have a comprehensive uh, <coughs> high definition colour video coverage uh, and over 8,000 high definition colour still shots from every aspect mm. of the wreck. So uh, we will be able, and the, the processing's now underway, to build a three dimensional uh, photographic model using those still shots. Uh, we have a team uh, of uh, submariners, engineers, operators, naval architects going through the hours of footage 
uh, and we have found uh, that the ship's ventilation hull valve, which admitted air into the engine room to let the engines being run on the surface, is 60% uh, open. That valve would have initiated uh, a flooding that would have flooded the after end of the submarine uh, and caused them to lose control uh, and would have then, as they sank, triggered the implosion mm -hmm. in the control room and the forward torpedo compartment. Um, we don't know why the valves opened. We don't know what was, was the gearing jam. Was there an obstruction in the valve? Uh, was it just uh, overlooked? It's obviously one third closed, so it's probably in the process of being closed uh, as this, <coughs> this unfolded. Uh, but it would have been extremely uh, quick uh, sequence. It would have been very difficult to uh, stop, uh, find the flood, shut the valve mm -hmm. and recover. And very quickly in the sequence, it would have been beyond control. The, the end would have been inevitable. Um, the implosion, uh, when it happened, would have been a major, it's like a truck bomb going off in the control room, uh, a major any event that would have killed the crew instantly. And the submarine then flooded, uh, sank to the bottom, which is where it is now. Now, that's the valve as a fact. The rest of it is a reconstruction with knowledge of the systems and the design, uh, and it's supported by the, the clues that we have in the wreck. The after end of the submarine is largely intact because it, it flooded, mm. it didn't implode. Uh, the rudder and the skeg are broken off because it impacted stern first because it was went down by the stern. The bow is untouched because it, the, the wreck then flopped forward and, and pancaked onto the bottom. Um, <coughs> the conning tower uh, is displaced and leaning forward because the implosion removed its footings and that final second impact uh, is what's probably uh, pushed the, the fin forward. So we have a, a range of supporting clues to it. Uh, we've provided all that analysis to a review group in the Defence Science <coughs> and Technology Group. They're going through it as, at, at this moment, but their initial response back is an agreement that what we're proposing is a sensible uh, hypothesis. Okay. You've talked about the follow-on analysis that's happening. Is there anything else that remains to be done in relation uh, to we, we find something every time we, we, we go into the, uh, <coughs> the detail of it. And there are a number of puzzles uh, there. The, the uh, stern cap on the after torpedo tube and the bow cap on the forward torpedo tube are open. Uh, hmm. AE1 prepared both, we would say, uh, the, the most likely reason is AE-1, prepare, he prepared his forward and after torpedo tube against the eventuality of coming across the steamer. So he's mm. taken the first step in the, in the sequence. The torpedoes are still in a dry tube. They're protected by a, a big sluice valve. Uh, but he's taken the first step in preparing his torpedo tubes. Uh, they had nothing to do with the accident, we don't believe. Mm -hmm. uh, it was done earlier in the day as he moved up. Uh, there would have been no time to be doing torpedo drills uh, in, the, in the diving sequence mm. given the, uh, the state of that uh, ventilation uh, hull valve. So there is, there is uh, follow-up examination would be very useful in, in understanding uh, and clarifying some of these puzzles. Uh, I might say too that the footage we have, and I, I spoke on Monday with uh, the descendants convener, and her reaction was quite uh, touching. She said, this is a beautiful, a beautiful gravesite. It, mm. it really is a spectacular 
uh, with its anemones and, and, mm -hmm. the, and the fish life and so on. Um, it, it's, it's quite a touching uh, site. It needs to be protected. Mm -hmm. uh, there are potential for trophy hunters to come in and, and, and try and recover uh, uh, pieces of it. That mustn't happen. Uh, we, we, I think the best answer there is a relationship with the local Miyoko Islanders who overlook it and to, to engage them to see that no uh, illicit action takes place. Um, the two countries are working to declare a protection zone around it and, and I would hope that happens quite quickly uh, so that there's a, a basis for denying uh, illicit action on it. Uh, there's still uh, the opportunity to access and view the wreck, but that should be done under a, a proper permit process with authority from the <coughs> PNG uh, government in whose waters the wreck lies. Indeed. Well, to conclude, gentlemen, can I ask each of you if you have any final thoughts on AE1? We might start with you, James. It, it's, it's an incredible story, and not only the um, the tragedy itself and, and, and the fact that the disappearance had, had been for over a century. It's a, it's a story of um, tenacity from everybody involved to, to continue to pursue it, to to follow it all the way to the very end. And, and I think that's um, inspiring for everybody that, that we can solve these mysteries. Things don't have to remain a mystery forever. Mm -hmm. And we do have the ability, if people desire it, to to find uh, and resolve these, these mysteries that we have. Indeed. Jim. Having lived with this uh, <coughs> tragedy for uh, um, all my life and, uh, and noting that my dad and his brother were, um, they thought a lot of Uncle Bert um, and uh, as he was known to them, and uh, it, it's uh, and this would have been similar to the other next of kin and other descendants, and uh, uh, and it is just so wonderful that we've had these magnificent people who've been able to to continue the searches after a number of. Uh, uh, failures, if you if you like, mm. and uh, to know now that our uh, the crew members have got a final resting place, we know where that is, and that steps are being taken to protect that particular area um, from scavengers, and uh, it, it's just very um, it's. It, it's very satisfying to know that um, they have now a grave. Indeed. And um, if only we could have passed it on to, like my grandmother and the um, parents of other uh, of other crew members, etc. But uh, no, it has been wonderful that she's been found, and uh, closure can now come. Indeed. And thank you, Peter, for, uh, for your tenacity and all those who uh, um, were involved with you. Well, thank you. The, the descendants' support has been a, one of the things that's kept us going through the whole process. And it's been very strong and, and 
have never doubted that we were going to solve the puzzle. I wanted to say in closing, pick up on uh, James's point, um, <coughs> this, the, this was a very embryonic state of the submarine. In 1902, the Royal Navy builds their first five Holland class. By 1911, when uh, the, the, two, the first batch of E-class, uh, which AE1 and AE2 were, were part of, is ordered, the Royal Navy has progressed in those nine years through six classes of submarine, from Holland to A, double the size, A to B, double the size, B to C, double the size, C to D, double the size, D to E, double the size. D and E are ocean-going submarines, the other uh, ones are, are coastal defence mm. submarines. They had, at that point, 75 submarines in the Navy, uh, six <coughs> different classes. Now, the, Royal, the, the, the Australian Navy today uh, has gallantly uh, s solved the problems of running one class and six submarines. Uh, you can imagine the difficulties yeah. uh, in this very early days and uh, we're, we're looking in trying to get and understand the context in which uh, Thomas Besant, the captain and the, the crew of AE1 were operating. Uh, training and procedures and all those sort of things are, are very, very embryonic. Uh, and, and so it's, it's really quite <coughs> striking, just uh, to James's point, the sheer courage of these guys to operate the submarine take it up there and head out on the day to try and find the German steamer uh, really needs to be uh, understood in this, in this context of, of, of a Navy that was, was learning as it went mm. uh, in this, this critical area. And uh, the accident list tells the story. There were, there were numerous submarine accidents in that short period of time. Indeed. Well, sadly, that's all we have time for today. My thanks to Peter Briggs, to James McPherson and to Jim Smale. Thank you for joining us and for more information on the Australian Naval History video and podcast series, simply search for the Naval Studies Group on your search engine. We look forward to talking with you again in the next series. Goodbye for now.